Episode number six, Judith Black, Child-Based Stories. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. The Art of Storytelling with Children. I have on the line with me Judith Black. Judith Black is is a goddess of storytelling. <laughs> and I have had the pleasure and the honor of seeing her tell on more than one occasion. And I have to say that it was worth every penny that I paid. In fact, in some ways, I felt like I got her at a steal. What, what I want to say about Judith is that she has told the National Festival five times. She's told... Um, at the oh, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. What's the name of the university, Judith? Um, Hebrew University. Oh, good. I was just checking. Did you uh, also and, speak Hebrew? That's why you thought it was maybe a double entendre. Yeah. And then she's also told the Smithsonian Institute, um, a very prestigious institution. And, of course, she's told all around New England and, and traveled the world. Um, in particular, Judith has a gift for the character and um, something that I love and I'm proud of myself of being good at. And I, when, I, when I saw Judith perform, I thought, oh, my goodness, I have so much still to learn. <laughs> um, but the other thing that she has is, is she has a real gift for telling a story from the point of view of a child and telling a story in a way that a child will identify with it and understand with it. Um, we're on a conference call format here, as everybody knows. If you suddenly get into a noisy environment, I'd like to remind you that you can just press star six to your phone, and all of a sudden your line will be muted. And then if you want to talk to us, all you need to do is press star seven, and your line will be unmuted. So if any time, if something noisy happens or the kids come running in or the garbage truck drives down the street, um, just press star six and star six. Wouldn't you like to do that with your life sometimes? I know it'd be great to have a little soundtrack button. Right. <laughs> but now with the iPod, you can everywhere you go. Just you just put the soundtrack on, you get going. An alternative reality is yours. Ha. Well, for those of you who may be tuning in just for the first time, this podcast, I am Brother Wolf, Eric Wolf, and um, this podcast has a blog, which matches it, at www.ericwolf.org or www.storytellingwithchildren.com. So, getting right down to things, Judith, um, let's talk about storytelling and the value of child-based storytelling. Where do you want to start? Well, if I was an institution and I was looking at hiring a storyteller, what, what would be the reasons that I would hire a storyteller based on uh, child-based storytelling? What, oh. what are the advantages for instance? You would hire a storyteller because you can teach anything if you speak to the heart, the imagination of a child. I mean, it's, it's really the same as for adults. You just have to start in a different place. But if you acknowledge who a child is, what their issues are, what their passions are, what their reality is, they'll come with you anywhere. I mean, that's the power of story. You start where people are and you take them to where they can be. And so if I was, let's say, presenting 
to a superintendent and saying, why should you have a storyteller in every school in your system? Ugh, there's so many reasons. Storytelling, for one, there's this thing I call KIPP, Contact Interaction Personalization. Storytelling does something that nothing else does when you're working with children. First of all, you have eyeball-to-eyeball contact around something that's not threatening. When you're working in a classroom, and you remember this, remember like, Depending on what your worst subject is. So, Eric, what was your worst subject in school? Well, I would say Spanish, but really let's say spelling and English. Okay. So let's say you're in English class and the teacher begins to talk about double negatives and your eyes kind of cross and you think, oh, my, I don't understand this. You you hold on as long as you can, and you, you can ask intelligent questions, and then you get to the point where you don't even have an intelligent question. You're so lost. You remember that point in class? Mm-hmm. And the teacher says, does everyone understand? And you do this thing called the fatal nod because you're too embarrassed to say you understand nothing. And the minute that starts, the minute you feel intimidated by the academic material, your walls of perception close, your gates of perception shut, and you're not present anymore. So the minute we feel threatened, whether it's cognitive or emotional, our gates of perception close and we go inside ourselves. And we think, oh, I'm never going to understand this. I don't understand it. I'm so bad at this. I just have a learning issue with it. And, right, you're not present. You're not in that classroom anymore. The same thing happens if for some reason you feel emotionally attacked, which can happen for any reason. I mean, somebody can just walk over. And with females, all you have to do is walk over and go, you know, your hair would look so much nicer if you kept it behind your ears. And that's it. You're gone. You're saying to yourself, my mother used to say that my mother liked my sister's hair better than me. My mother never liked my hair. My mother never liked – and you're not there anymore. So you want children's gates of perception to stay open when they're in an educational setting so they can take things in. And a wonderful way to really observe your children and make sure their gates of perception are open is to tell them a story because the story is about someone else in another place, in another time. It is ostensibly not about them. So they can enter that world and they can journey. And because there's no fourth wall in storytelling, you're looking at them. You're telling the story and you're looking at your students. And you're watching. If I'm a teacher. um, Oh, you're right. Fourth wall is a theater term. Thank you. Um, Actors use a thing called fourth wall so that when you're in a in a another place you look out and you see the fourth wall of that place you don't see where you really are because you're trying to create an alternative reality and storytellers use that as a technique but it's like a spice the most important thing we do is look at, at the listeners is tell the story to the people sitting there so as you're telling this story about other young people their age in another time and place you are watching them in a non-threatening environment where their gates of perception are wide open. And you can tell so much about your students that you just simply can't tell when those gates are closed. You can see when they begin to disengage. And that disengagement can come around difficult language, difficult situations in the story. It can come around social things that happen in the classroom that you wouldn't be aware of if your head was in a book and you were reading it. It can come with a plot twist, but you're watching them and you see it happen. You learn so much about them just by watching. You see when a kid doesn't understand, and then Papa Anansi pulled the calabash. I see you don't know what a calabash is. That's okay. It's a big, hollow gourd, and it grows on a long vine in West Africa. 
So you wouldn't know that they didn't understand if you were reading the book. But you can see from their faces when you're telling a story where they don't understand. You can tell when the story's getting too scary. And the witch said, come here, Hansel and Gretel, come. And you see one little kid just getting ready to cry. Uh, Come into my house, dears. I have something lovely for you to eat. So you pull back on the character a little bit. You can see when they're bored and you need to up the ante. Come here, little one. And, you know, (laughs) grab them right up. You wouldn't know to make those adjustments if you weren't if you didn't have that eyeball-to-eyeball contact and they weren't completely present, as you can only be when your gates of perception are wide open. And because of that, you do this thing called I. You interact with them. How many other forms, at least art forms, allow you to do that, to interact fully? You see their response and you interact, so you P, C-I-P, you personalize the experience. You speed the story up, you slow it down, you explain what the calabash is. I used to have this great kid in my class. His name was Earl Moraney. Earl Moraney was the black leather jacket kid of the nursery school room. I mean, tough. He would go out at lunchtime and he'd organize little gangs, but Earl would cry like a baby if I made him do fine motor stuff. Well, I used to read books, you know, upside down like every teacher can do. And I didn't see that Earl Moraney was starting to put the moves on Molly Tolkoff. At four years old, his little fingers were dancing behind her back until his arm was around her shoulder, and Molly would scream, Earl Moraney, get your hands off me, and the whole class would be in chaos, and we wouldn't be reading the story. When I'm telling the story, I see this happening. And then the witch said, Earl Moraney, put your hands back on your own lap, good boy. (laughs) So, you know, the characters speak to them, the narrator speaks to them, wherever you are in the story addresses that kid and their behavior, and it personalizes the story. So what I hear you talking about here is you're talking about the value of listening to the experience of your audience, in this case, yes. children, yes. and the value of including including their experience of the story in the story you're telling. Right. Making that story for them. I mean, stories like a quilt. The the quilt is made, the colors are chosen, the the pattern is there, but it changes depending on what you put it on. Every time you throw a quilt over something else, it changes shape. And so does a story to meet the needs of its listeners. Storytelling with children. (laughs) Storytelling with children. Storytelling with children. I'm just thinking about this, the application of this for some individuals. I think that a lot of uh, people get when they talk about telling a story in front of a class um, and they, they, when they think about doing that, the te- some of the teachers I've worked with, they get a little afraid of getting away from the book, of getting away from the clear lines of what they're working with. You know what I'm talking about? That, that they, That's why they're called folk tales. They belong to the folk. <laughs> Guess what we are? We be the folk. <laughs> you know, Sue... So, I mean, and that's one of the wonderful reasons to work with folk tales. You know, they're changed in every generation. They're reshaped. You know, those ancient tales that came out of, that the Grimm brothers collected, they changed them. You know, they they took these very gritty tales, and for instance, they took out all the sexuality. You can see a lot of these same stories in um, Diane Wolkstein's collection, the, the Magic Orange Tree. And they still have that kind of sensual and sometimes sexual base because Haitians are very at peace with it. 
middle-class Christian boys in Europe were not. So we've always shaped stories for our listeners. Perrault took those same stories and reshaped them for the French court. They became niceified. There were lovely details. You know, the, the many petticoats that the women wore, the, the details of the court were all there because he was reshaping the stories for his listeners. Disney, you know, when, when his stories first became popular, it was just post-World War II America, and he reshaped those characters. He refeminized the characters in a way they hadn't been. He made the females insipid because they really wanted women to leave the factories and come back home. So everybody reshapes their stories for their audience. So we should feel that we have the right to do it, too. And, and in reshaping the stories and in doing that, the actual action of, of creating a story, um, there is, there's a feeling sometimes that it's difficult. It's too difficult for me. I have to do it, and the expert has to do it. You know, you and me can do it, but um, someone with their class in Nebraska, they on the plot in the book. Well, that's what's nice about um, learning the story in a way that's not literal. So, for instance, um, the class you took with Doug and I, Doug Littman, the Telling Stories to Children, that process of getting a story off the written page and blowing your own life back into it and learning the story as a series of images instead of words. And when you create that series of images in your own imagination, the story becomes yours. And then if you're watching your listeners, you can't help but shape that story around them. So I was working once in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And this was an amazing experience. Lawrence has a huge population of Puerto Rican and Dominican immigrants. And a lot of the kids come from homes that are not very stable. And when you work with second graders who have these hardened cheeks and eyes and jaws, Kids who are much older than they should be at seven. They've, their life has just had experiences that most seven-year-olds don't have to have in this country. But they've had them. They're hardened. They're suspicious. They're scared. And they have good reason. Yeah, they have very good reason. They have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's when you need to tell the hard stories. Because the sweet stories don't speak to these children. And I'll never forget being in a second-grade classroom in Lawrence, and there was a little boy who, I'm not listening to no dumb stories. These are stupid. I said, not a problem. You know, you can just sit over there and do what you want to do. But he was listening to every word. And um, I told Hansel and Gretel, but I took it, told it as Jose and Maria. And, you know, instead of breadcrumbs, poor Jose drops rice. And just added details that might reflect their living. But it's a story about kids who are abandoned. And these children, in some ways, have been abandoned because they don't have secure home lives, a lot of them. And this boy, it was so interesting because he started to crawl closer and closer to the other kids in the class. And about two-thirds of the way through the story, he was hiding behind a chair behind one of the other children. And I saw what he was wearing. And I used the color of his shirt and described Jose, the hero's shirt, as being the same color. And you had to see him. He popped his face out. And he joined the other children. Just joined them. And at the end of the story, when Jose and Maria had not only been thrust into a world of a witch-infested, child-eating forest, had figured out how to survive, 
and how to survive not based on Disney magic or on the fact that they were pretty or nice. They used two things that every kid has. They used their friendship, their ability to trust each other, and their wits. And what a great message to a kid. You have those things. No matter what life gives you, you have the ability to create finding trusting friendships, and you've got your brains. And those kids survived. They not only survived, they thrived. They came home, they caught that duck, they brought home a lot of good stuff to dad who'd gotten rid of that woman who didn't want to share her food. And, what, and what, you're ta- what you're talking about here is so exciting to me because it, to me it's like in, in service of a greater good. You know, storytelling in service of something else besides just entertainment, besides mm-hmm. self-importance or being the center of attention. Storytelling that 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 brings us forward, not just me and you and and the, these kids, but but some other other thing that is all of us together. Oh. You know, and and to me, it just I get I, I get chills. <laughs> you know, because to me, this is why I tell stories. Yeah. And I get so excited. You know, I don't get excited about performing in front of a large audience. What I get excited about is knowing that in that audience, there are three or four people, or a hundred people, it doesn't matter to me, who really were affected by that story. Oh, oh, oh can I tell talking. you another one? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, this, but wait, wait. Let me... Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me this is, and, and the thing that's really, um, it's really thrilling for me is the potential of the storytelling movement in this country mm-hmm. to, to be the fulcrum that brings us back to who we are. Mm-hmm. Because in the storytelling movement, there's this tradition of talking about, you know, the Mark Twain tradition of talking about the town that never was. It never really was quite like the way he described it. But it's an aspiration that we all still inspire to. Yeah. You know, we all inspire to that. And, and as, as storytellers, whenever we tell a story that has that greater aspiration, it just has that much more potential for, for having a larger impact. And even bigger... We need to think about a world that isn't yet, because we're eating up our resources. Well, let's you know, not get down to the depressing. But talk about the world no, but, that isn't yet. I know, but that's another that's another thing that storytellers do. They use their imaginations, and you can create new possibilities, to as well us, as deal with the realities. Tell us the story. Oh dear. The other story. Oh, okay. So this is. This is very interesting. This is in the same school, and my job was to work with the three second-grade classrooms and to share stories with them that then we could work together and create plays from so that all of the children could create their own dialogue and characters and create plays to share with the rest of the school and their families and community, which wasn't easy because a lot of the kids didn't attend very regularly. And in one classroom... I mean, the the poor teacher just looked deluge, but she had a lot of children with special needs. But there was one really, there was one kid in the class, his name was Friend Diego, and he didn't stay in the class too often because something would upset him and he would start throwing chairs out the window or some such thing. I mean, he really, something would click him off and he was gone. And the the school was so crowded, there was no place for this boy to be except for a staircase. There was no lunchroom, there was no gym, there were just classrooms with beleaguered teachers. And in this particular classroom, I was telling them different stories. That I told them three stories and they could choose one of them that they wanted to make a play out of. And one was a... Um, 
Dominican version, I guess really upon a mother and two children, and the mother dies, and the father marries another woman who is proud, and she is good to the father, and she is good to the son, but the daughter looks like her dead mother, and the daughter she hates. And every chance this woman gets, she belittles the daughter, she beats the daughter, she starves the daughter. The woman only loves one thing, and that is her fig tree. And one day when she goes shopping, she says to the daughter, You be careful. You watch. Not one of these must be missing. Not one. And the girl is sitting and sewing beneath the tree, and an old beggar comes. And and he asks um, for, for water. And she's a kind child. She goes in and gets it for him, and he doesn't think. He's hungry. He sees one of the figs. He picks it and eats it. The girl comes out. She gives him the water, and he offers her a blessing. Well, when the stepmother comes home, the first thing she does is count her figs, and one is missing. And you have to see the kids' faces because they know it's going to get ugly. And they are in this story. I mean, they are living it. And the stepmother yells, You are a lazy, rotten girl. You ate my fig. No, I didn't, Grandma. I didn't. I didn't. Yes, you did. You ate my fig, and now you are lying to me. I'm going to slap you and slap you again. But no matter how many times she slapped the girl, she was not satisfied. And she finally told her to dig a hole in the backyard. And she said to the girl, Look down there. Look at the bottom. I see a chili seed. A chili seed. And then she pushed the girl into the hole. And buried her alive. Ooh. And when the father and brother came home, well, the father asked, where is my daughter? Oh, she went to visit her cousins. Come have dinner. And weeks passed, and then months. I, I miss my daughter. She, she is having a very good time. She will come home when she is ready. But in the yard where the girl had been buried, out of the ground came a plant. Small at first, but it grew. Limbs and leaves and little flowers. And the flowers fell and they turned to small pods. And the pods turned to chilies. And when the girl had been gone five months, the father looked out the window. I I would like one of those chilies with my dinner. Oh, no, no, you don't want one of those. They are bad. Wife, I want a chili. No, no, no. Son, go pick me one. Okay, so I'm going to... Give you the PhD version here. The son goes out and picks the chili, and the and the plant sings to him, and it says, "Oh dear brother, don't pull my hair because of stepmother. I'm buried here." And the boy goes in, tells the father. The father goes out. He pulls a chili. The plant sings the same thing. He calls the the stepmother. He says, "Pull one of those." No, I don't think so, husband. Pull one of those chilies. I pull now. And when she does, stepmother, don't pull my hair because of you. I am buried here. And the stepmother faints dead away. The father and the son dig and dig. And there is the girl, protected by the old man's blessing. And the father and his two children live happily ever after. Whoa. This is the story the children wanted to act out. Well, the teacher, who's this very sweet woman, she calls me out. And she goes... You know, these children have very difficult lives, and I'm just not really comfortable with them reenacting such a a violent story. And she had to be convinced 
that the reason the children wanted the story was for that very reason, and and that the story showed a child who lived in that level of violence survived it and thrived and through nothing more than a good heart. And when she came to understand why the children loved it so much, she was game. But watching them take on the characters and living out this story, which could have been a model for each of them, because none of us have the power to change the economy, the society, or the politics. What we have the power to do is to give people models for surviving and thriving through story. I wish it was more, but, I mean, that's what we do. So this little boyfriend, Diego, this is hysterical. The poor kid lives in the hallway and on the steps because he's always having these seizures, these violent seizures in his classroom. So I'm walking past him one day. I go, hey, friend Diego, how's it going? What are you reading? Michael Jordan. (laughs) Is it interesting? Nah. Want to hear a story? Okay. Now, sometimes you don't know why you do things. But I chose to tell him the story of Bluebeard one of the grossest, bloodiest stories in the world. Why? I have no idea. But there's a reason for everything. There are no accidents. Because later that day, the principal told me that his father had been in prison in Massachusetts and was just getting out and had to go to New Hampshire and fulfill a prison term there. And he was allowed to come home and visit for two days. Wow. So the next day... Friend Diego is again sitting in the hallway, isolated. And I walk past. He goes, hey, story lady. I go, yeah, what is it, friend Diego? He goes, you want to hear a story? Sure. Come here. And I sit down, and he opens his book. And he's drawn a picture. And the picture looks like a prison. There's, you know, like barbed wire. It's, it's a second grader's picture, so it's not real clear, but, you know, it's, it's a fence with something nasty and a big house in the middle. And he says, my story is the story of Blackbeard. He's a very bad man. And he gets out of this place and he hurts all the people. But, you see my hero? And he was the hero. Mm. And in the story, he stops Blackbeard from hurting anyone. And you wish, I mean, you wish you could say to these kids, your world's going to be a safe place, but it's not. But he just made himself the hero of his world. And he used the model of Bluebeard and the young woman who saved herself, and he put himself in that role. And he decided that he would not let his father do harm to his mother or himself in his allegory. And I don't know if you can ask much more. You can, I mean, you can ask much more. I mean, storytelling can teach. It can, it can teach anything. You know, it can teach natural sciences. It can teach math. It can teach history. But this, it's this, this stuff. This, this point we're talking about, of that, that by identifying, by labeling the evil, by saying this evil exists, even as a metaphor, I mean, that's the thing that really gives the story its power, yeah. is the honesty of saying, yeah, there are mass murderers, and it's a reality of the world. They exist. And this is one way that they're dealt with. This is a possible solution. Mm-hmm. Just because, I mean, the, the kid is just overwhelmed by the concept. Right. You know, mass murder. You know, whoa. People are funny, too. They go, I don't want my child hearing fairy tales. They're too violent. 
So my then first they question watch television. always <laughs> Right. That's it. Does your child watch television? Because at least in fairy tales the violence is never gratuitous. Good is rewarded and evil is punished, always in equal amounts to what has been done. You know, there, there's no roadrunner and coyote whapping each other 8,000 times. You know, Cinderella's mother could not perceive her beauty, so her eyes were plucked out. It's that kind of justice. And we learn justice before we learn mercy. We learn in black and white before we learn in gray and beige. And you and I know this is not a morally ordered world. But wouldn't you like children to think it is maybe before they learn otherwise? So how much time do we have? And do you oh, want to yeah. talk? Oh, yeah, where are we at? I got lost, too. Seven thirty. We're about halfway through. Uh, I'll have to edit out that number. Let me say that again. It's halfway through our show. Mm-hmm. Um, we have six people on the line with us today, which is very exciting. And I welcome any of you to chime in. If you have a question, just say your name, and then we'll give you some space to ask your question for Judith if you have one. I'll give you, if you're on mute, I see one person on mute right now, and to get off mute, if you're frantically trying to figure that out, it's star seven uh, to get off mute. And if you get into a noisy environment, press star six. Um, If you have a question for Judith, I'll give you a couple seconds now to say your name. Uh, It doesn't have to be exactly on topic if you have a question about storytelling in general. The jokes. Oh, people are shy. It's okay. (laughs) But if I'd like you... If you could, this is Midge. I would like you to continue on the thought that you were just addressing with the parents. And yes, you know, they watch TV, but I think that parents also think that they are screening their children from a lot of a lot of the things that they watch, that the adults watch on TV and are just doing the whole Sesame Street and the, you know, the benign, what they consider benign stories of TV and aiming just at the educational avenue of it, mm-hmm. learning, learning the cognitive aspect, mm-hmm. how would you address parents in convincing them the value of storytelling and and that it's okay to bring up these conflicts and and the diversities of, uh, of real life? Midge, great question, because a lot of people indeed are very careful about the world their children live in, and they don't want them to have that ugliness. So some folks, like the people that I worked with in Lawrence, their lives are very difficult and challenging, and so the stories often address that. But even those of us who create the most um, the most trusting environment for our children, our children still have internal issues. And those internal issues and the way they perceive the world allows them to have fear in their lives. They're small. The world is big. I used to be a nursery school teacher, and parents would bring their children to school. And this was the loveliest place you can imagine. I had three- and four-year-olds. It was nurturing. Everyone loved each other. But at the beginning of the school year, the child would grab onto their mother's leg and scream, And the mother would say, oh, honey, you know I'm going to come pick you up in just two and a half hours. You're going to have a great time. And me, the teacher, would say, really? We all want you to be part of this classroom. We're so happy you're here. Don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. So here's the internal truth. And that is 
that no matter how nice we think that space is, this child still is scared. It's new. It's big. They don't know the rules. They don't know anyone else. And so the story of Hansel and Gretel, a very real fear being left at a big strange place because the issue isn't mommy's coming back in two and a half hours. The issue is she's leaving you tomorrow, sweetie, and again and again and again. And how can you come to peace with being left in this place and not being afraid? Do you not hate when people tell you don't be afraid of your issues? I mean, how many of you love going to the dentist? So when somebody says, oh, you'll love this dentist, he's just marvelous. <laughs> You're like, oh, boy, can't wait to get there. You don't like having your own issues ignored. You know, if you're feeling antsy about going to a meeting or a class, somebody says, oh, don't feel antsy. Is that respecting your feelings? No, and it doesn't feel good. Well, it's the same thing with children. This is a new place they're going to. It's big. It's scary. They are feeling fearful. So all of our words about, oh, you're going to love all the other children here. Oh, don't worry, honey. I'm going to pick you up in two and a half hours. Isn't really addressing what's going on inside that child. Now, it doesn't help to say to a three or four-year-old, you're having abandonment fear. Once you're secure in this environment, you'll be over that. Right. They don't know what that means. That's, you know, psychological cut-cut to them. And the teachers are having an intellectual conversation, and the right. child is having an emotional conversation. Exactly. And fairy tales deal with that emotional truth. So Hansel and Gretel are left in a big, scary place, just like that child feels only it accepts their issue as real, and it blows it up on the big screen. It's not a tasteful middle-class nursery school anymore. They have it really bad, but they survive, and they thrive. And a lot of times you have no idea what issue a story is addressing. But any parent or teacher will know that a child will ask for the same story 8,422,000,000 times to like, you so don't want to read it again. You're like trying to stick the pages together and they catch you. You missed page 13B. Because the story is addressing a deep issue that they're having. So no matter how, how carefully we shape our children's external world, their internal world is still rich and it's dark, and it's light, and it's loving, and it's fearful. Because they're still, address- they're still adapting emotionally every day. So those stories still address a child's internal issues. Does, does that speak to your question? Yes. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Sure. Um, another thing that I've found helps with parents is this quote. I'm, I want to read this quote about television, but then I don't want to go on TV or stay on the child-based stuff. But I just want to read this quote because I know I'm talking... Everybody listens to this podcast is already converted, but here's a quote for those who aren't. Um, According to the source book for Technology and Science, a web-based encyclopedia, the average child will watch 8,000 murders on TV before finishing elementary school. By age 18, the average American has has seen 200,000 acts of violence on TV, including 40,000 murders. The American Psychiatric Association addressed this problem in its endorsement of National TV Turn-Off Week by stating... We have had a long-standing concern with the impact of television on behavior, especially among children. Um, Waldorf teachers listening to this podcast who are listening will all nod their heads saying, of course, we knew that already, because Waldorf schools require that homes of children going to school at that school, are not allowed, the children are not allowed to watch any TV whatsoever. Hmm. And the behavior of those children is different. And when a kid comes to the school and the parents don't really do that, they can tell which kids, the teacher can tell which kids are being exposed to the television experience. 
Um, but going back to our topic with Judith, with the child-based stories, can you just break down for us three or four very clear one-sentence benefits of of telling this form of of really basing a story um, instead of basing a story on what you read in the book or how you think you told it before, but changing the level of the story in terms of as a storyteller, what's the benefit for me in telling to an audience in that style? You know what I'm saying? Well, you're shaping it to your listeners so it becomes an unforgettable experience. I mean, when suddenly the hero's shirt is the same color as the shirt is of a child in the class, they come to identify much more profoundly with the characters in the story. And they allow them, they become the heroes and heroines of their world. I mean, that's also the power of telling instead of using a book with illustrations, even though a lot of illustrations are so stunning. The truth of it is, how many illustrations feature children of color? How many illustrations feature children who are less than perfect looking, who are overweight or have a bad leg or have a lazy eye? When you tell a story and you tell it for the kids there, you can gently integrate some of the details of who they are. And they see themselves in those heroes and heroines, and they emerge with that strength. You create community by integrating the details of their lives. By having them be part of the story, they become invested, whether it's singing a chorus or chanting it or or just answering questions. The story becomes theirs, and once they take ownership of it, they start telling it. And it, it it's not just emotional, it's also academic. My my friend who used to teach kindergarten at a school, she would always tell Snow White, and she would use the word, hair as black as ebony. And people would say, oh, ebony, you, know, you don't want to use a term like that for five-year-olds, they don't understand it. Well, guess what? When the terms are used in context of a story that has really captured their heart and imagination, they reach for it. So on the playground, she would hear the kids saying, oh, look, that tree is dark, dark as ebony. And they began to understand things, and so you reach for new understandings as well. It's the best. And, and children love that grasping. Oh, they, yeah. they live for it. You know, and, and one of the, the things that, in our culture today is this dumbing down. You know, oh, fourth grade is for that. So in third grade, mm-hmm. you don't do that. And there's something about spicing up the story with just a little bit of a reach in there, a little bit of a complexity. And then, of course, for young children, stories teach pre-concrete operational learning skills. I mean, so in, in Piagetian terms, you have to teach sequencing, recall, grouping. And, you know, you can have certain toys that teach that, but almost every folktale on the face of the earth includes all those three things. And because the story is about a trickster that they can relate to because tricksters are little kid stories. You know, it's about the little person tricking the big one. They're invested. And so they are sequencing. They are doing recall. They are grouping. So a lot of those skills are you grow naturally out of your storytelling. Then if you want to teach about other cultures, you can tell stories from those cultures. We learn in windows and mirrors, I think. And you need to see a little bit of a mirror of yourself before you're willing to travel through a window into another world. And so when we choose stories for children, we want to choose stories 
with characters they can relate to or events they can relate to or themes they can relate to. And then they will travel through a window and they will come to try to understand another culture and the details of that culture. So, But you have to start from where they're at. Right. You definitely start with... You're starting from where they are, their experience, their culture, whatever it is for them that Mm -hmm. defines who they are. Yeah. And then offering them that window. You can teach subject matter. So, um, (laughs) you want to hear a little piece of... Ooh. Sorry, you want to hear a little piece of a story? Yeah. All right. Uh, was was working in a third grade once, and the poor teacher was just beleaguered. She had so much to teach. And she thought, oh, I have to have an artist in residence. I'm as happy as death to welcome you into my class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been there, so been there. <laughs> so, so I said, tell me what you have to teach. She said, I have to teach caterpillars into moths and butterflies. I said, okay, no problem. Go to the library. Basically, read the third grade books on caterpillars to moths and butterflies. And create a story. I'll tell you the beginning of it. Hello. My name is Cynthia. Today I'm a caterpillar. But tomorrow or the next day or the next, I know my fate. I know my destiny. Someday I shall be a butterfly. Only one out of every five caterpillars become butterflies. Only two out of every ten caterpillars become butterflies. Oh, look at them with their long, lean bodies, their pointed antenna, and their wings of orange and golden yellow are parked so neatly behind them when they sit. Oh, yes, oh, yes, my fate, my destiny. I want to be a butterfly. And I would have taught this song before I started the story, and half the group will be it. I want to be a butterfly soaring in the sunlit sky. My wings parked neatly on my behind. I want to be a butterfly. Hey, Cindy. Oh, dear, that's Chuck Caterpillar. He's a gross and disgusting creature. Pay him no mind. Hey, Cindy, baby, face it. You're going to be a moth. (laughs) Most of us become moths. Four out of every five of us in caterpillars become moths. Eight. Out of every ten of us in caterpillars become... Nothing wrong with being a moth, Cindy. <laughs> so what if their bodies are a little rounder and a little furrier? So so what if the antenna's short? So so what if uh, the wings are around at the side and gray and brown? They kind of just hang there. They live at night. It's more fun. <laughs> Face it. So, wait, this is science. Yeah. What about math? Oh. If you ever conquered math, what did you do for math? Oh, okay, so... We got science. I, that's good. I can see history very easily. English already covered. But what about math? How do you ha ha. So aren't you glad you asked? Um, I teach at Lesley University. I teach graduate students in their arts institutes. So one of the things we always do is turn curriculum into stories. And one of the teachers came in. She goes, fractions. I hate teaching fractions. They never understand fractions. It is a hard concept. So we made up a story together about Fractilious fraction. You know Fractilious. She can't keep her hands to herself. Every time she sees one of the other kids, she can't help but fraction them. Robert, round. Oh, Fractilious, please keep your hands to your... Oh, hi, Robert. Hi, Robert. I can't help it. Oh, I whoops. I fractioned you into one, two, three pieces. <laughs> Sorry, Robert. And this would have been a felt board story. So you'd literally see the circle fractioning into three pieces. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Oh, oh, hi. Oh, I'm Sammy Square, but Fractilius, please, please. Oh, Sammy, Sammy, hi, I can't help it. Oh, no, don't, don't. I just have to, I have to, have to. Don't, fra- whack. And Fractilius fractions poor Sammy into one, two, three, part, four parts. All the same size. And so the story goes on. 
And there's a fractilius in every single third grade. It's a boy or a girl. It's the kid who has no motor control, who's all over the place, who's always whacking other people, doesn't mean to hurt them. I, and I, then, used, to, I used to tell the audience, the, mm-hmm. the podcast audience, that the next podcast with Jim Flanagan, number six, will be teaching writing to children with storytelling and working with state benchmarks. Mm-hmm. So I actually think it'll be number um, – but anyway – Jim Flanagan, it just—it's it's really cool that you're blending into this because it really fits in with what's coming up uh, in the future. Um, so going back to the the child-based storytelling, mm-hmm. and because and we're ending, we're getting close to the end here of our mm-hmm. time. <laughs> and um, with looking at at child-based stories and how we use them and how we as storytellers to work with with there are okay. So you you just you sometimes will take a kid. And you will use those colors, that description in the story. Mm-hmm. And you're 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 kind of being careful about who you pick and who you work with. But also, you might use the culture that that group might come from. What yeah. are some other ways that you have drawn kids into the stories? Um, let me just uh, caveat: I would never use the child's name right. or an exact description of them if the story was about a highly charged emotional issue. Ooh, that's good for the very reason that we talked about initially, that in order for the gates of perception to stay open, you really need to feel unthreatened. So you want them to identify with the character on their own. You don't want to say a character is them, because that then becomes threatening. And how do I know this? Because I blew it, that you learn your best lessons by really messing up. When I was a teacher, I had a little boy who used to get scared. He came uh, to school every day with his mom on the subway. So I thought, oh, I'll make up a story for him. And it was about him on the subway, and his mom got lost. And, of course, I'd already thought of this great way that he could find his mother by asking for help. I never got there. The minute he got lost, right, the kid blew into tears. He was just unconsolable. And so you really want to keep it in a very safe place and allow people to voluntarily identify with the character. So when I give a character a characteristic that one of the children in the classroom have, it's just that one little characteristic. You know, they can choose to identify or not. A really fun thing when you're doing stories that reflect their emotional issues is to do what people have done from time immemorial, which is choose an animal that reminds you of their dominant behavior. Um. You know what, I can say that, but I've never actually heard of that before. Oh. <laughs> I must be living in a closet. But that's, um, that's I mean, really Okay, amazing. so have you read Diane Wolkstein's the, Ma- the Magic Orange Tree, The Haitian Tales? No. Or but any I African heard, I've, story. I've talked with her. Well, and African folk tales. I mean, any folk tales like this. I mean, are people telling stories really about snakes and rabbits? Or are they telling stories about the dominant characteristic of a snake or a rabbit. Mm. I mean, you know, in the story of Owl in the in Diane Wolkstein's book, a girl is not dating a rooster and a uh, and an owl. I mean, that's what she says and but she's, you know, she's dating someone who is very very fancy and someone who is very very self-conscious. And the animals come to represent those characteristics. I mean, that's that's how we think about it. Anyone who listens to it is fine. You know, it's fine to say it's a, it's an owl and a rooster the girl is dating. But folklore has done this from time immemorial, chosen the chosen the animal whose primary characteristic represents the person they want to identify with the story. I I, ta- I did a whole CD on this subject on how Aesop used used 
the characteristics of animals to um, make fun of various politicians. Oh, and yeah. Characters in his life. Mm-hmm. I, I picked out all the Aesop stories that directly dealt with freedom and slavery. Mm-hmm. And just of those, and then, you know, did the whole... Children in the classroom. You know, if you have a, you know, a child who can't, you know, if you, you have a trickster. Or you, you have a child who's very large and lumbering. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's easy enough to choose animals to represent them. They don't need to know that animal represents them. But it helps you in creating the story. Oh. Space in the conversation. Oh, beautiful. Well, this last chance to ask Judith a question from the audience. Or respond, because I, I know everyone on the phone has he, enormous experience in this field. That's true. I'll give you five seconds. Press star seven if you're on mute to unmute your phone. I told a story this afternoon that said this story is about a little girl who is having her third birthday, and the whole audience responded, I'm three. (laughs) (laughs) You had their hearts. About manners, but they were all there. They were there. So yeah. very... so. It's that I mean it's that simple. And mm-hmm. they're suddenly there. Star seven if you're on mute. Um anyone else want to make a comment or a question for Judith? Hey Judith, it's Sean. Um I, I really appreciate the fact that, that you're talking about that folk tales change. And and grow. Um, I think a really good example is it, it, a lot of people will uh, romanticize the Brothers Grimm tale, and even for them, a lot of their original stories, the 1807, 1810 versions, really still contain a lot of that overt sexuality. Mm-hmm. But as soon as, as soon as William came along, came along and realized they could make money if they cleaned them up, he cleaned <laughs> them up. And a good, I mean, it's true. And a good example of that is um, is Rapunzel. Uh, because in the original versions of Rapunzel, when, when the mother comes in the room, the, the fairy comes in the room, Rapunzel asks her why her stomach is growing and her clothes don't fit her anymore. Um, and so there's that whole – so I, I think it's important that we understand that, that stories grow and change, and they don't always grow and change for, for romantic reasons. They grow and change sometimes for, for, for financial reasons. And that's some of the nature of being a professional storyteller. Yeah, you Snow White – it, it was really her mother, not her stepmother. Mm-hmm. In those earlier versions, uh, there was yeah. a hue and cry that no mother would do that to her own child. So <laughs> <laughs> these people not had teenage girls. <laughs> well, Judith, do you have an offer for the audience listening today and also in the future on the podcast? Oh, well, if if you're interested in 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 getting some of these stories, I have a I have a couple CDs. One called Oops Ma, which really takes that Bettelheim model of exploring an issue, blowing it up out of proportion, and finding ways to resolve it. But it's for contemporary families. So these are all original stories for contemporary families using that very traditional uh, fairy tale model. And they're hysterical. And you can get those on my website, as well as some great fairy tales on Glad to Be Who I Am. And also, and this is just about the most fun thing, and, and Eric, you took this class Coming up is the very – Doug Lippman and I have been teaching a course together for over 20 years called Telling Stories to Children. And let and me it, tell you, it is a good class. 
It's always the last week in June, and this is the last year we're going to do it together because Doug has moved to the Southwest and it's just much more difficult to negotiate. So this is the very last year we teach it together. We do it out of my home in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Um, I bake fresh food every morning. We do workshops, coaching in the afternoon. It's just it's a wonderful experience, and we meet wonderful people like Eric. Um, if you're listening to this podcast and you would like to sign up for Telling Stories for Children, the website is www.tellingstoriestochildren.com or you can just give me a call at 781-631-4417 and I will offer you a $50 discount if you mention that you heard it on Brother Wolf's show. This year it is June 25th through 28th. Do you want... To, oh, 2007 for all you yes. 2008 listeners going, what? <laughs> 2007. Um, Thank you, Brother Wolf. <laughs> so uh, as a part of that, do you want to cap that? You know, ten the first 10 people calling, the first 20? You just want to say, oh, bless their hearts, the first. <laughs> we can take up to 16. <laughs> okay, 16 people. You heard it here. Um, and I want to extend an offer to the audience listening um, that – it's not really an offer. Well, it is an offer. I want to offer you my – I just recently learned that um, the blog, uh, Storytelling with Children, has gone up another level in the Google ranking and is becoming even more important, <laughs> which is very exciting to me in terms of Google's point of view. <laughs> and uh, many storytellers never get those higher rankings. And I wanted to offer to any storyteller listening that if you want to put a comment on my blog – you are welcome to put a comment and include your website address. And if you do that, you put the comment and you write a real comment, not just, hey, nice gold by medicine story. I read this article by Judith. Judith's got a great article, which she's going to have a little bit ad change tomorrow, so check it out tomorrow. But if you write a comment and you put your website address there, I will leave it, and it will add value to your website because it will, it will because my, my site is going up in Google rankings, and it will raise your site school rankings as well in, in the reference. So I really encourage and I ask any listener to please come on the blog and write a comment. I'd really appreciate it. I want, I want this to be a community of people exchanging ideas. Uh, so take a few moments and uh, give back to the community and give back to Judith. Write a comment on her article about uh, story, child-based storytelling. Uh, last words for the storytelling community, Judith? Oh, Mid Sean, Sharon, thank you so much for calling in and whoever else there that I didn't know about. And let's just keep telling stories. This is Storytelling with Children, and you have listened to another hour talking about the art and the love of stories. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, Judith, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank, thank you. you. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. 
The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening. As my granddad told-